Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arbor Gate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arbor Gate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851 or arborgate.com. Garden Success is also brought to you by The Farm Patch, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan, 979-822-7209. Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Well, hello and welcome to Garden Success. We are looking forward today to talking to you about whatever interests you out in the garden. Uh, we are in the, I guess, the intersection between summer and fall here. Uh, our summers kind of come early. They come in May around here. Uh, but uh, it's starting to get a little hot out there, but oh, it's not what we really know to be hot down in this part of the country. Uh, but as a result, all of our uh, warm season crops uh, have been going in. Uh, some of them since March. In fact, if you haven't planted tomatoes yet, probably ought to just use that space for something else because they're not going to they're not going to perform uh, well enough for you to be pleased with with them. Uh, so, I would suggest that uh, all the hot weather stuff, like okra, for example, would go in. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But let me give you a phone number and an email so you can give us a call or perhaps send an email with some photos attached of a question that you might have. Our phone number is 979-845-5689, or you can reach us by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And let's go to the phones right now and talk to Randy. Hello, Randy. Hello, Skip. How are you? I'm good. How's it going? Going well, going well. Got a uh, question for you. I have a particular flower bed that's got, it's got ivy, uh, some English ivy in it and some... Uh, and some other, you know, types of things, but it's also got nutgrass mixed in. And mm-hmm. I had I have some of that nut sedge um, that I bought from the co-op, mm-hmm. and it works very well. But my question is, spraying it in there, uh, do I take a chance on damaging things that aren't nut sedge, or is it, uh, is it just, Ooh. is that type of stuff just anchored towards killing nut sedge? Yeah, it depends on the product. There are several things that are sold for managing nut sedge. And uh, do you happen to know what the ingredient was in it? I know it's probably a long shot, but uh, you know, when you try to even read it, you need like <laughs> some magnifying glasses, and right? Some more on top of those to read all that stuff that's in it. So, so, so was it called Image or Manage or uh, Image? Or image. image? Uh-huh. Okay. So, Image, uh, the ingredient's amazequin, and that particular. Uh, product can do some damage to some broadleaf uh, plants, but okay. I 
I would just be careful. You know, the bottom line is to look at the label and see what it says. If it's okay to use it in flower beds, it will tell you, and it'll tell you which plants are safe or not safe, you know, in okay. it. Uh, that's probably the best thing. But you know what I found to be effective? And wh the nutsedge is growing uh, in the ivy, or wh wh what's around no, the No, it's just sporadically. You know how it is. I mean, it's, you know, I've got a lot of, you know, there's some lily plants in there mixed in, so, you know, that makes it even tougher. You know, it's a more broader leaf on those. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it's just kind of mixed in there. You know, if you pull it, it's not going to do anything unless you get the nut. Right. Uh, so you can make it look good for a little bit. I've used this stuff before, and, and when you spray it, it's yellow. If that helps with anything, it kind of mm -hmm. it's got a yellow color to it, so that way you know what you hit mm -hmm. uh, with it. Um, okay. And it works great, but um, you know if you have an idea, it'd be better because yeah. What what I would do if it were if it were my beds, and I would jump on it quick because you've already got nuts that have formed this year from the nuts that came through winter. So uh, I always tell people if if you wait until about May, you probably have eight to ten times as much nuts edge as you did in February uh, underground. So I I use a, a wiper applicator, and you can make one um, yourself. Those tools that are sold for like grabbing a jar off a shelf or for picking up trash, they you know I've got a little a grip where you can squeeze them and it'll it'll grab a hold of something about three feet right. out at the end of the stick. Right. Uh, on the end, however works for the type of grabber tool you bought, uh, take a, a standard, just a small kitchen sponge and cut it in half and, and tie, glue, bolt with a washer, whatever, however, uh, each half to one side and another half to the other, for example. So uh, when you do that, the little thing is going to be about uh, smaller than a deck of cards on, on each side. But now you have two sponges. And you can put your image, or if you're using glyphosate, or if you're using what manage or whatever you're using, you just dampen the sponge, and then you can reach in there and like under a rose bush and grab that nut sedge, squeeze it at the bottom, and then pull it up, and it just wipes that all the way up the leaf. So you get really good coverage on your nut sedge, and you mm -hmm. don't get the product on anything desirable. You know, you don't want those sponges so sopping wet they're dripping over everything. Right. Uh, but that works really well, and it's a way to okay. go in and do a little bit of a surgical removal. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I, I think that's what I would do. That's what I okay. do, do. I've actually, do. many moons ago, I did it with a little syringe. You know, I went yeah. in there, and I would just squirt the very bottom of each one. You know, right. you know you're sitting in there and just squirt, squirt, squirt. Right. But uh, and I, I I know mean, it worked, but it's. You know, it's a lot of... Yeah, I know people, too, that take, you know, the largest type of barbecue tongs. Just get you a cheapo pair, you know, those kind. Not with all the rubber and everything on them, but just regular, big, long barbecue tongs. And do the same thing. Then you're going to be on your hands and knees uh, right. because they don't have that three-foot-long stick. But gotcha. uh, either way works really good. And even if you got it coming up in a in a, a lawn or something and it comes up above the the turf grass... You can you can smear that stuff right on the nuts edge, and uh, that's the best okay. way I know. Okay, well, that's some good ideas. I appreciate it. Uh, the the second uh, option is expensive, and that's moving to a new house. Yeah, uh, that that's another one. <laughs> uh, I'll keep the nuts edge. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> All right. I appreciate it. All right, Randy. Thank you for I'll the call. You. All right. How many of you have nuts edge out there that are listening? I bet a few of you do. 
Uh, I have seen some pretty serious uh, infestations. Some of the the islands on University Drive in front of the campus, oh my gosh, it's like a chia pet. I mean, they are so thick. It, you'd think it'd make a good turf grass. It's so thick in there. Uh, but but here's what's ha what happens. A nutsedge tuber, and this is nerdier than most of you want to go, but hey, bear with me because it actually has a practical application. A nutsedge tuber has about six or eight, somewhere in that range, uh, buds on it. Maybe it have, you can have a little bit more, but generally I think of about, you know, half dozen to eight or so. And those buds, when one of them will send a shoot up, and then when you break off the nut's edge or use a hoe to cut it off or something, it just sends another bud up. And so you, it's like you never get ahead of it uh, that way. Uh, and in the spring, it sends a plant up from the 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 nut or the tuber underground and we'll call that the mother plant and then by the time we get about to may that mother plant has sent out runners to the side underground that now have viable tubers on them that can send up plants so they may have you know eight tubers that are on a mother plant at that point that are viable. So if when the first mother plant came up in the spring and it had three to five leaves on it, you treated it or dug it up or did anything you're going to do to get rid of it, or if you waited just until mid to late May to do the same thing, you would be fighting almost 10 times the battle that you had uh, earlier in the spring. And so when you're going to treat Nutsedge tubers, uh, when they come out of the ground, they're just like a missile coming out of a silo. They, they come straight up. They have a, a sheath around them, which is what allows them to punch through fabric and punch through almost all the ground cloth that we have if they're pulled tight. Uh, I have even seen a freshly laid asphalt uh, parking lot with nuts edge pushing up the soft asphalt around the edges. Uh, I mean, it, it's tough. But when it hits the light, it opens up and then it starts to capture to capture sunlight by the time it gets about five leaves on it it is not as active in taking things down into the plant and sending it out to the the tubers that are growing and things like that and while you can spray and kill that plant you've got those viable tubers. So uh, think of it this way. I say three to five leaves. Uh, in the research that I've seen done, when it hits about five leaves after that point is when the, the treatments are not going to be as effective in getting rid of the overall problem. Uh, but I let it have three leaves just so that there's something to apply the product to. Okay, So think of it that way. Three to five leaves every time get it done and and i have one of those little wipers that i described uh, homemade and you just kind of consider that that's going to be your job on saturday morning uh, for about a month in the spring and especially in march and in april now you get out with your cup of coffee in one hand you got your little grabber tool in the other hand walking through the yard the nice thing about the length of those is when you just let your your hands fall down to your side uh, that tool is about long enough for the sponges to be right at the near the ground level. So it doesn't require stooping and bending and anything. And like I said, you can do it with a cup of coffee in the other hand. 
and you just go through and you wipe it on every nuts that you can find. If there's some other weed that's coming up, you know, a wild blackberry plant or whatever is coming up around there, uh, you can wipe it on those too, uh, depending on the product you put in it. Uh, with For going after weeds in general, you would use something like a glyphosate, for example, uh, which is a, a Roundup is the famous brand everybody knows about, but there's a lot of brands of glyphosate. Uh, but anyway, uh, with, with uh, whether you're going with a sedge control only or just a general purpose uh, product, uh, you just stay on it and you never let it up for air. If you let it get five leaves and sit there in the sun for a few weeks, all you're doing is increasing the battle that's ahead of you. It's like the nut sedge is bringing in reinforcements or technically it's growing its own reinforcements. Uh, and so you never let it up for air. And you can get rid of it. Uh, I'm, one treatment may not get rid of a nut. It may take a second one, depending on the product you're using. Glyphosate actually, as good as it is at killing weeds, is not that great in terms of just eradicating nut sedge. But if you stay on it and it's using stored carbohydrate energy to come to the surface and before the sunlight can really begin to replenish, you're sending a product down in to kill that nut. Uh, you'll win that battle. And uh, I don't mean that, you know, in the first summer it's all over, but let, let's just say that you, you don't want to wait. You really don't want to wait. And for those of you who don't want to use products, uh, hand digging would be the way to go. You can buy those little diggers that are like a long kind of a fork on the end, and you stick them down in the ground and pry and pop pop the ground up and get those nuts. I've used a spading fork in beds before uh, and just work my way through the bed. It's a lot of work. You're on your hands and knees. You're fumbling through trying to get the nuts that are underground and they have little wiry connections to the next nut. So the most you, more you can get out, the better. After you finish, uh, a week or so later, you see all the ones you missed because they've popped up and you just go right back at them again. And uh, it's work, but let's just say... Uh, like the old saying, you can pay me now or you can pay me later. I'll say this, you can pay me a dollar now or you can pay me a hundred dollars later. Uh, and if you don't take care of nuts edge now, uh, if you think you have work on your hands, wait till you try to deal with it later. Well, that's a lot of time on nuts edge for one show. So why don't you call and get us off the subject? It's 845-5689, 845-5689. Or garden success at tamu dot edu. Garden success at tamu dot edu. And uh, I am going to say one more thing about nutsedge. Another thing that can help prevent it from proliferating is to put a, a shade fabric. Uh, I mean, a, a ground cover fabric over it to shade all light from reaching the surface. And uh, we're talking about those, those products that you may see in a garden center, you're walking, or a nursery rather, you're walking through and it's the black stuff on the ground and they set the pots on it, that kind of thing. Not a shade cloth, but, but that ground fabric. You can buy it in wide lengths and, and put it over beds. You don't want to put it tight. If you put it tight, the nut's edge is able to punch through that stretched tight fabric. If you leave it loose, just like a loose bed sheet laying across the bed, when it pushes up, 
like uh, using the sheet analogy, it just moves up and, and there's no resistance so it can't punch through it. And what it does is it just bends and twists. It's atelated. It's not green. It's got that pale color because it's not getting light. It's burning car carbohydrates to do that and it sends another one and another one. And I've, I've done that over a bed and when I pulled up the, the uh, fabric, it looked like spaghetti under there. I mean, it was just all this spaghetti colored atelated nuts edge growth and we did, actually did a trial one year um, where we took 10 nuts edge tubers and put them in containers full of potting soil uh, probably the only person you ever know who has actually planted nuts edge on purpose but anyway it was in the name of science and we put them in in pots and then we every other pot had a shade cover over it that no light could come through and the other pots had full sun. They all got the same water. It was all in the same soil. We let them grow for several months, and then we dumped out the pots and counted the nuts edge nuts. And when we completely shaded it, what started as 10 nuts on the average ended up as about eight. And now their viability and stuff, I, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe we did better than we thought, but I would say we didn't eradicate it with a few months of shade but we definitely suppressed it and held it in check uh, for, for then. The ones where we didn't shade it, I can't remember the number, but it was like 10 nuts was 200 nuts or something. I mean, it was crazy how much proliferation it did. Uh, and so just, a, just a, another technique would be that complete shading of an area. And that, again, is just to hold it in check. And if you did that, and then pull the shade off, and when it tried to come up, then you sprayed it and sent some product down into the nuts, I think you would really, really knock it back well. So, all right. Well, apparently somebody is giving us a call to put an end to the Nuts Edge talk, but I'll give me the number one more time, 845-5689, 845-5689. False alarm? Okay, good. Uh, or Garden Success at TAMU. Dot edu garden success at tamu dot edu uh, let's see i had a question from larry larry planted uh, six eggplant transplants after the last frost that we had and three plants each in two different beds and they all looked healthy and are growing slowly about six hours of sun per day which is what we would consider the minimum but they should fruit well in six hours of sun and they've all put on blossoms however none have set fruit um, and they have, they've tried shaking the blooms, uh, using a paintbrush to the blooms, uh, and then they, they just, the blooms fall off. And, and uh, the new flowers appear, uh, but they don't set fruit. They fall off, and this has happened to them before. And they're watered daily and fertilized every two weeks uh, using a fish emulsion. And other ve veggies in the same beds are doing well, setting flowers and fruit, and that includes peppers and tomatoes. Wow. That's a question. Uh-oh, phone rang. Let, let, me, um, let me finish this one, and I'll, I'll, I'll start this. Uh, I'm going to have to think about that one, Larry. So if things like tomatoes and peppers are setting fruit and your eggplant is not setting any fruit, then my idea of, well, you killed all the bees or somebody killed all the bees or rainy weather and the bees aren't out, uh, Something like that would be at bay, but this is something 
that has been going on for a period of time, and yet other things are, are doing pretty good. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ponder that one and look into it, uh, and then we'll try to we'll try to get back to you with hopefully a somewhat uh, intelligent answer. Uh, so let's go ahead and go back to the phones now and talk to Catherine. Hello, Catherine. Hello, Skip. Thanks for taking my call. Yes. I'm calling because I have a crepe myrtle, and on the crepe myrtle at the base there have been numerous small crepe myrtles coming out and I know many times people allow them to get uh, multi-trunked yes but if I wanted to keep mine as a single trunk Mm -hmm. what can I cover it with last year I trimmed them and it exudes sweet sap so Mm -hmm. all the ants came and I didn't treat it with anything and of course they grew back again Yes. Now. Yes. So at the base of a shoot, there's a bunch of buds. And when you cut it off, those buds then sprout. And so the closer you can cut the shoot off to wherever it attaches, uh, the better off it'll be and not sending up another shoot right there. Closer. Uh, Closer to cut it. Just cut it as flush as you can. That's not normally how we prune. But for this situation, we cut it as flush against where it attached as you can. Uh, and you just have to stay after it. Some are, some varieties are much worse than others about that. Um, mm-hmm. And so that would be my best suggestion. There are some products you can spray that are growth inhibitors. Um, I think there's one that actually the name is Sucker Stopper. But uh, go to where they sell a wide variety of products and... and uh, um, Talk to someone knowledgeable at that place and say, what do you have for um, shutting down suckering on a, on a plant? And there, it's a hormone type thing. And it basically just, you know, throws the balance of hormone there uh, in a direction that doesn't favor suckering. Now, it's not you do it once and it's forever gone, but it will help suppress it if you've got a variety that's just giving you way too many suckers. So if you've got old little stumps that you left when you cut off previous suckers, go ahead and cut them back um, and really do all that surgery. Well, all right, I will do that. I took a note on your advice. Thank you very much. And the ants seem very happy with uh, the extra sweet treat. (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, I'm okay with that. That's okay. I mean, that... Plants already leak out a lot of the carbohydrates that they produce, just supplying their root bacteria and stuff with something. So losing a little bit of sap here and there is not anything to worry about. Well, thank you for your help, Skip, and all the good stuff. All right, Catherine, thank you very much. Take care. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let's go back to the phones now and talk to Ken. Hey, Ken. Hey, Skip. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm well, thank you. Uh, I've got a question about tomatoes. So uh, I have uh, Creole and Celebrity tomatoes that are growing beautifully in the garden right now. Mm-hmm. The question that I've got is I know from the past that once temperature hits a certain um, uh, temperature, once it gets high enough, uh, the tomatoes tend to go sterile. And I'm looking at the weather report that's coming up this weekend and next week, and we're going to be in the upper 90s. How is that going to affect my tomatoes at at, at this young stage of the crop, really. Yeah. Well, uh, Ken, the the thing that affects successful pollination and fruit setting on tomatoes, it's not just the daytime temperature, although hot daytimes are not good, 
but it's also the nighttime temperature. And it's when our, our nights get up, you know, 75 degrees or above, and I don't know the exact number, but we're still having cool enough nights to where I'm not too worried about it at this point. Now, if we had a real good heat wave, it would affect them for a little while. But, uh, you know, we had a day or two where it got up in the upper 90s, and then now it's kind of back down again. In fact, it's heading back down towards Saturday. Uh, so I think you're going to be okay. Creole and Celebrity are both slicer types, so we would call those large-fruited tomatoes as opposed to cherries and grapes. Uh, cherries and grapes set better in the heat than the slicer types do. Uh, but those are yeah. those are good varieties, and I wouldn't give up on them yet. I think I think you've got another wave of fruit coming. Good. All right. That's what I was wanting to hear. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, you bet, Ken. Thank you. Uh, let's go to the phones again. And uh, the number, by the way, is 845-5689 and talk to Ron. Hello, Ron. Hello, Skip. Hey. Hey, uh, I got uh, a live oak tree that I, live oak, several of them that I planted, and uh, about 50% of them or so have these sucker uh, growth coming out from, yes. the, from the roots. Yes. Is there any way to uh, either prevent, I heard you call it just a while ago, is there any way to prevent that, or what can I do to stop it? Or? Yeah, uh, so southern live oak, um, there there's different <laughs> strains of it. The uh, up in the well along the the Gulf Coast, uh, there there's a, a strain that is not as bad about suckering. That's that you would see, you know, the big old giant trees of the of the old South. That that kind of live oak uh, are are not so bad about suckering. As you get up uh, in toward the hill country in Austin area of Texas, there's the version we call the escarpment live oak, and they are horrible about suckering. Uh, that's why you see so many oak mots out in the hill country where you have multiple stems coming out of the ground uh, for oak trees. Uh, depending on the source of the oak that you planted, you may have one or the other and, and therefore more prone or less prone uh, to suckering. The more you disturb the soil around them, so that would be like rototilling a flower bed around them, uh, uh, extra water around the base, which comes along with putting in a flower bed around them, the more suckering that you get. And as I was saying with crepe myrtles a minute ago, when we just go and mow off the suckers, they're just going to come back, you know, because you've already got the shoots with the buds at the base there present. And uh, so there's not a great way to fight it. Some people will use a very good, strong row cover, um, ground cover fabric, like I was talking about covering nuts edge with earlier, a good strong one, and put it all the way up to the tree uh, to just essentially shade them out. So when they try to grow, they, they just, you know, it, it, if you walk on it, you can feel it a little bit crunchy and spongy under there because of all the suckers, but it, it kind of shuts them down. And then you would just throw something halfway attractive over the top, like some bark mulch or something, and no one would really know what's going on underneath. So those are those are kind of some of the options. Uh, do you, does that seem to help, or do you have a more additional? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I just uh, obviously there's no any kind of a herbicide that would would not be the right thing to do. No, no, there's not because any herbicide you put would hurt the tree. Um, there is okay. there is the hormone type sprays like the sucker stopper, uh, and I need to find out what's sold around here. Uh, for that. I, I think you can buy something like that around here. But those hormone type sprays, they suppress that kind of thing. And so you need to repeat them. Uh, but 
if you've got a really bad case of it, and I've seen it so thick it looked like Asian jasmine growing around the base of the tree all over the place. Uh, yep. When it's like that, uh, probably the sprays are, are warranted. Okay, that's kind of I have one that's like that, so I may I may give it a shot and see see if it works. Yeah, yeah, and let let me know uh, if you find the the product, and in the meantime, when I get off the air today, I'm gonna I'm gonna go searching myself and see what I can find. Okay, thank you, I appreciate it. All right, Good day. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, our phone number is eight four five five six eight nine eight four five fifty six eighty nine or by email garden success at tamu dot edu and William sent me a picture of uh, some tomato leaves and they have some spottiness to them it's kind of an irregular spottiness with some yellowing associated with it and uh, according to the email uh, this is uh, more toward the top of the plant uh, and when I first look at it, I think of, of fungi uh, because we have a number of, fun, of fungi. There's uh, one called septoria, which this is not in this picture. Uh, those are more smaller, rounder spots uh, compared to the way this looks. Um, and there's uh, late blight, early blight, uh, all those kinds of, of fungi that attack tomatoes uh, that may form larger spots. Then sometimes in a very humid environment, you'll even see powdery mildew or a, a mildew on a tomato. And uh, that typically is something you run into with a, a greenhouse uh, environment where it's exceptionally humid. Powdery mildew doesn't need wet leaves, but it loves super high humidity and especially cooler temperatures. Uh, and I think we're hitting a point now where the cooler temperatures are not there. Uh, but uh, if this were growing in that kind of environment, it could be that there is some of that involved as well. Otherwise, I think you're dealing with a fungus. And um, although we generally see fungal leaf spots occur on the older leaves on a plant, we say they start at the bottom of the plant, but not because they care whether the bottom, it, where the bottom is or where the top is, but because the leaves on the bottom are the oldest leaves on the plant. And it takes time for a spore to land on a leaf, to be coated in water at the right temperature for the right period of time, to germinate like a weed seed, send its root equivalent of a root down into the leaf and create those leaf spots that finally we look and go, oh, there are spots on my leaf. Well, that's a process. Uh, again, weeds are a good analogy because you can have bare soil with weed seeds in it and then it nothing is growing. But when it gets wet, all of a sudden the weeds pop up and they're little tiny things. And then next thing you know, you got this big weed on your hand. And that's the stage where most people look at leaf spots and say, oh, I've got a problem. But the problem started a lot earlier. So I would... I would remove the leaves that have it. Hopefully it's not a huge percentage of the leaves on the plant. And get them out of there. Don't drop them down in the area because they're potentially going to have those spores that would reinfect. Uh, get those out of there. If you're going to spray, after you do the sanitary removal of the leaves, then you would use a, sp a fungicide spray to spray the tomatoes and stop additional infection. Fungicides don't typically cure a problem, 
they prevent a problem. So you're essentially putting a protective coating on or in some cases soaking into the tissues of the leaf uh, to prevent additional attack. So I think that's the best thing. Keeping in mind too that we are getting ready to be in summer and by the time we hit oh sometime in June I don't expect uh, these tomatoes to be setting really well. You may still have fruit on them that set earlier. Uh, they'll certainly be picking ripe tomatoes on in through June. But um, when uh, we're looking at additional setting that's not going to occur. So uh, it just kind of make a decision as to what's worth it to you on your plants. When a plant is too far gone, it's not worth trying to spray and save. Uh, when there's not much season left, it's probably not worth trying to spray and save. So uh, that that is what I would recommend. And ro the variety is Roma uh, for, for, for William or Bill's plant. Uh, and uh, Roma is, is not that disease resistant uh, it, as, it, as it could be. It does have root uh, fun, fungal resistance, Verticillium fusarium, but, but uh, the uh, foliage can, can be affected uh, by these things. I hope that uh, is helpful. Our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689. A lot of times uh, folks will wait until toward the end of the show to call, and then we got a bunch of calls trying to run through them real quick. So if you plan on calling today, if you'd call a little bit earlier, I think it helps to sort of spread the calls out a little bit. Anyway, uh, had a question come in by email from Nancy. Nancy has a big oak tree that I can see was a beautiful oak tree. The winter storm Uri uh, uh, did some significant damage in 2020, uh, and then 2021 didn't look so good. Now when you look up at the canopy, there's a lot of branches with no foliage on them and a few branches with some tufts of leaves. And we are still seeing some of the after effects of that freeze that was so long ago now. Uh, the the uh, tissues that were killed, uh, the plant, as the great demands come on it, maybe it doesn't have the, the pipelines that haven't been killed to run that water up and up into the plant and support the leaves and things. And as a result, we see collapse in the summer uh, as they go into that, or maybe other things come in and add insult to injury from the wounds that freezing caused. Uh, but in this case, with that much of a loss, I think you're probably going to be look at taking the tree down. I know you don't want to hear that. Uh, however, before you run out there with a chainsaw, I would uh, hire a certified arborist to come out and to take a good close look at that tree. And I'm not able to see which kind of oak it is. I want to say it's a it's a red oak, but I, it's too far away for me to know for sure. Uh, but uh, it could be a post oak. Um, Anyway, they're, they're going to make an assessment because what will happen when you take all those branches out is you'll be making some huge cuts uh, so that the wound or the, the open area where the inner wood is exposed is very large. And with a tree that age, it's unlikely that the callus that forms around the edges of the wound will grow rapidly enough to cover over uh, that wound and and essentially cover over the exposed inner wood. So then you're beginning the process of inner decay and hollowing and weak branches and potential breakage and, and whatnot. Uh, so I think an arborist taking a look at it uh, would probably be a good idea, but just from looking at the single photo from a distance, I, I, you could just prune out the bad stuff and give it a little more time uh, to avoid having to take the whole thing out now, if, if but I think long-term that tree is not, not long for this world. 
That's my, my take on it, at least. Well, let's go to the phones now. The number is 845-5689 and talk to Kimberly. Hey, Kimberly. Hey, good afternoon. Um, I have a question regarding what your suggestions are to establish a compost pile. I don't really want to um, take the time to build one, so mm -hmm. I was wondering how good the tumbling bins work. The tumbling bins are okay. The volume they hold is on the small side compared to a large compost pile. Yeah. Uh, and so when you have a smaller volume, the ability for the microbial activity to really heat things up and speed the, the process uh, is less. Uh, the fact that it's in a bin does hold some of the moisture in and holds some of the warmth in uh, as well. But... Um, it, it, so that'd be better than just being in a pile of the same size as the bin. Uh, but uh, you just want to get the mix really right in there. So whereas with a, an exterior compost bin, the, the, um, you could throw in some large leaves that haven't been chopped up and, and not have the blend of, of green stuff and brown stuff so right, and it's going to eventually decompose. In these tumblers, you would like to shred the material so they're smaller. You would like to make sure you've got some good nitrogen in there with the carbon, so the, a dead dry leaf is primarily a carbon source, and uh, grass clippings or even a little nitrogen fertilizer can be a source of nitrogen, and then the moisture just right. And you can, you can do an okay job with those. You can also compost in a heap. Now, that's not very aesthetic, but um, the, uh, you don't have to have sides in a box to make compost. So if you're going to do it in a um, heap or in a, a container outside, mm -hmm. what would you recommend? Well... Because it, it would need to have aeration holes in it, correct? Uh, well, the heap, just the surface of the heap is, it. you know, you're not making a heap six feet high. So it's, it's you're going to... It, it's going to do okay, but you're going to turn it and occasionally taking a fork and, and kind of rolling it over, uh, and that, that helps complete the composting of what would be dry and dead on the outside now gets turned inside where it stays moist and decomposes. Uh, I've done it different ways. Uh, probably the simplest thing is to just take some um, like a fencing wire, uh, not necessarily fencing, but the like a, a one by two uh, mesh wire. It's a welded uh, galvanized material or even a little bit larger like a 2x4 welded material and make a ring with it and you can make that ring uh, what will end up being at least four feet in diameter could be a little bigger than that but four feet's a pretty good size uh, and I just use and you can just use a, a twisty wire or you can use little hooks the little uh, uh, hooks that uh, any kind of a hook you can devise so that when you make the circle it then stays a circle it holds together and then you put your your stuff in there and when you're ready to turn it you just unhook it peel the wire off the outside of this cylinder of 2b compost and rehook it right beside it and then take the materials and throw them into the new setup wire circle and, and you just turn the whole thing that way. Uh, some people will even line the sides with paper to keep moisture a little further out on the materials inside so it doesn't just, like a wick, dry out on the outside so fast. Uh, so there's a thousand variations, but here's the bottom line. When you have organic materials 
and you keep them moist at a, at a decent temperature, they're going to decompose. The microbes are there in the environment, and we can do all the things we do to speed up composting, such as getting the nitrogen to carbon ratio right and um, uh, doing the smaller particle size of the materials we put in it and all that. But compost happens wherever, wherever organic matter is laying around. So if you're going to use a tumbler, is it beneficial to have one with two sides so that one can be composting while you're adding to the other? Or just, I've heard you can't add in the middle. Right. Yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't <laughs> want to do that. You wouldn't want to do okay. that. Uh, and when you compost stuff, it loses a lot of volume. So if you shred it first, you've already taken the volume down. I've got a little cheapo leaf shredder thing that uh, I can take a two bags of leaves and make them into one bag of leaf. But when it composts, it'll be about a third of a bag of leaves or less, maybe a fourth. So you grinding it up, filling that bin up, not full, full, but a lot because the volume is going to shrink down. And yes, having that other bin nearby is helpful. Okay. All right. Of course, well, that's a lot more expense. Right. That's more expense. But another thing you can do if you kind of want to mm -hmm. shortcut the process is, you know, when you have bags of leaves, uh, you can just wet those leaves in the plastic bags and maybe throw, oh, just a shovel full of garden soil or less. Just it's, it's almost like a sourdough starter you're throwing in there with all the microbes that come with the dirt. And uh, then put those bags around somewhere out of the sun and uh, punch some holes in the side so that oxygen can move in as, as the process goes on. Uh, and by the time it's time to redo your tumbler, those leaves will be turning chocolatey brown and getting crumbly in, in that stage we call leaf mold, and they'll be on their way to composting. So it's like a head start on what you're mm -hmm. gonna then put in your tumbler. So that would avoid having to buy two tumblers uh, and, and kind of shorten that interval a little bit. Well, unfortunately, I have a new yard, so I'm a couple of years away from okay. leaves. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. But your neighbors, go to an established neighborhood, and they're so nice, <laughs> they put the bags right out there for you at the curb. Yeah, I'm sure they'd love for me to come rake their yard. <laughs> well, I just let them, I don't miss let that them, at all. <laughs> let them rake it. You just go pick up the bag when it's out there for you. That's, yeah, that's a good idea. All right, thank okay. you. Thank you, Kimberly. All right, let's go back to the phones now and talk to Kate. Hello, Kate. Hello. I have called you several times, and I'm calling to fill you in on a request you made, mm, I don't know, a month ago. Okay. I asked a question about stock. This was the first year I had tried to grow stock mm -hmm. and had a question about the seed pods and whether I could deadhead stock and you asked me to let you know how it went. Uh, <laughs> I think I have to be honest and say minimal success. Oh, okay. Um, no great flushes of a second bloom, but um, and it takes some real thoughtful pruning. I don't know that I got it down to a science, but I, I think it's... <laughs> It's not recommendable to waste much effort trying it. Uh huh. Uh, but yes, thank you. You you explained to me that those big things were seed pods, mm -hmm. and I'm going to let them stay there and dry and okay. have seeds next year. I'm calling today with a, a new question about thrips. 
They are the bang distance. Um, yeah. I have one antique climbing rope. I don't know if you'll recognize the name. I think it's Sombriel. Okay. And I have a Belinda's Dream. Okay. And I mean, <laughs> I don't know how the thrips arrive simultaneously with the first buds. Well, here's but, how, here's how that happens. Uh, it's the wildflowers that one of the things that does it to us. When when like the the wildflowers like blue bonnets and those little pink things people call buttercups, uh, but they're more of an, a primrose kind of thing. Yeah, they're full of thrips, and as they die down, uh, the thrips just take flight, and it's just like. You know, just it's almost like smoke. You know, just just wafting across and I never coming knew to your garden. Flew. Oh my gosh, they do, they do, and they're tiny. And greenhouses. Oh my God, you can hardly see them. Yes, you can. That's right. And uh, greenhouses will put a screen on that is so tiny, not a window screen. They'll go right through that, uh, but a little tiny screen uh, on those big fans to keep the thrips out because they will ruin stuff in a greenhouse. And this is a, a bad thrips year. Uh, we I've had a number of calls on it, extension office and samples that have come in and things. And when they get on the rows and they start on it early and they get down in the bud, there's just not much you can do. You can't get a spray to them. Uh, and uh, it just, it's just sort of something we kind of so have to live So that was my question. Are they inside of the buds as the bud is forming? Well, n I don't think when it's a tight bud they're inside. But as it loosens up a little bit and, th and they can gain access, uh, they're moving in. I, I don't. I am not an entomologist or, or even a rose specialist, but uh, I don't know exactly at what stage they can get in. But I know by the time you're even halfway beginning to think, oh, I've got me a new bud about to open, it, they're in there and, it, and mm. they're doing their stuff. And they, they, they have mouth parts that are like a reciprocating saw, you know, one of those that goes in and out and just slashes mm -hmm. and rips through stuff. And mm -hmm. they, they literally just rip through the, the petal tissues and uh, cause those little browning areas. And when there's so many of them, uh, it just... It just ruins uh, the the blooms. So when I'm spraying, there's no point in spraying the leaves of the plant. They're not there? Or do they crawl all over? Well, I, that's a good question. I, I don't know if they might not land on a leaf and be exposed, but that's not where they're most interested. You know, let me okay. think about that a minute, because chili thrips do affect the leaves. Um. I'm not going to give a definitive yes or no to that one because I don't know. Uh, but so spraying the leaves would be fine. I would spray under the leaves if you're going to do it and spray above. Uh, the the product Spinosad, it's an organic product. It works well, but they'll develop resistance. If you don't do anything but spray Spinosad over and over again, it will no longer be effective. And it can happen pretty quick. Uh, so if you are going to try to spray for them, I would alternate spinosad with some other things. And off the top of my head, I'm, I'm not thinking of the things to send you out for. But if you'll email me at the extension office, I can I can send you a list of some of the things that okay. are most, most effective against thrips. And I take it I have to spray repeatedly, I don't know, every two or three weeks apart, or how does that work? Well, I would say during the springtime, when, as you put it, your roses are about to take off and do well, you would start your spraying. 
then, and especially as we get up into um, maybe June or something. And again, I, I'm going to I'm going to punt and and ask for time to go look into it and give you a little bit better answer mm-hmm. than that. There are a lot of different types of thrips. I mentioned chili thrips a minute ago. Uh, the the there are a lot of different types. The western flower thrip is one of our more common ones, or thrips there. Thrips is plural and singular. Weird, but it is. Uh, so do you think that m- this is the first year I planted blue bonnets within my enclosed patio garden that I could have been bringing thrips in to my garden? Well, the thrips had something of interest early on because the blue bonnets were there. I, you know, the blue bonnet seeds didn't bring thrips with them when you planted them. Well, no, they were plants. I planted four-inch. Probably not. Maybe if they were blooming, they could have had some thrips on them. But um, it's an insect with a life cycle. And so there are just a lot of them, and they can move uh, quite long distances on the wind. And so I don't think some blue bonnets you planted made any appreciable difference in the issues. It's just the kind of year we're having. Well, we've had a very windy year. It, we sure have. Uh, who knows? These may have come from Timbuktu on the wind, the way that thing's been blowing. Well, it's just heartbreaking that um, I just get no beauty out of my roses because yeah. the thrips intercept them and destroy them. Yeah. Would you send me an email to the AgriLife Extension office, my email there, and uh, let me work on this a little bit because it okay. is a bad thripture, and I'm sure other people have the same question, and I would like to give a little bit more specific answer than I've been able to give you. Okay. That sounds good. I'll do it. Well, thank you, Kate. I appreciate that. You have a, you have a good day uh, despite Bye-bye. the lack of roses. Hey. Hey there. We just had another caller, and maybe this will help Kate out as well. He was wondering what that email address at the extension office is. Oh, okay. For those who may not have it already. I I generally don't give that out because, well, I don't have any problem giving it out. uh, Just because we're giving out the garden success at tamu.edu, which is the email I use on Thursdays. Uh, If you want to reach me at the extension office, it's rrichter. That's R-R-I-C-H-T-E-R, Richter, spelled just like the earthquake scale. Uh, at ag.tamu.edu. So R-R-I-C-H-T-E-R at ag.tamu.edu. And that will get me the emails there. And I can't keep up with emails, so now what did I just do? I just created a bunch more emails. I don't know, but we would prefer the garden success for the sake of the show on Thursday. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah, uh, because that it makes for a better show. All right. Thank you. Well, our phone number, 845-5689-845-5689. Give us a call. We still got a little bit of time uh, and we'll be be uh, looking forward to you calling and giving us some more some more of that information. I want to uh, go through some. Let's see, a couple of more emails. Uh, I had one from Joni, uh, six fortnight lilies. In fact, I believe I may have answered this one last week. Uh, and they're in varying locations and not blooming. Oh, yeah, I did that. And fortnight lilies can be a little persnickety about not blooming as well uh, as we would we would like them to. Uh, but uh, that's 
that's just uh, kind of goes with the territory. And by the way, thanks, Greg, for some great pictures of drift roses. Drift is a, a series of different roses. It, they're bred to be low-growing, almost a, I don't know, ground cover is not a good way to put it, but they're a low-growing, somewhat of a spreading out kind of plant in many cases, although the growth habit from specific drift rose to another one can vary, come in different colors and things, uh, but they're really nice little roses, very pretty, and they make the rose more of a landscape plant. You know, the hybrid tea roses, the beautiful cut flowers, you plant those in your landscape and they're kind of leggy and stalky and not that attractive as a plant in and of itself. Uh, but uh, shrub roses and uh, roses like the drift series are just beautiful landscape plants. So instead of putting a boxwood in or some other, maybe a dwarf yopon or some other uh, lower growing plant, why not uh, a drift rose or some, some other small rose like that? Uh, and there are a lot of good roses. One of these days I'll just talk roses for a while. Uh, but right now let's go to the phones and uh, speak to David. Hey, David. Um, hello, good afternoon. Afternoon. Um, I've got a question about tomato plants. I do them for the last few years, and I've got tomatoes that the, the leaves are curling up like a <clears throat> like a hand is clenched in a fist or something like that. Okay. I think I solved this in the past, and I'm forgetting what I did, whether it was Epsom salts or something, but, but I don't think they're too dry. Uh-huh. Um. So the the leaves are cupping upward, and it's is it just the new growth that's not forming right, or is it like the older leaves on the plant are also they were flat and now they're starting to come up up a little bit? Um, from my memory, I think it's more towards the new growth. Okay. Yeah, because last uh, yeah last week it was it was better, and I and I think there's still some some amount of foliage that's still looking nice okay well I, I tell you probably to give you the best answer David I'm gonna need to see a photo or two in an email uh, and, okay. and that way I'm I can be sure to send you in the right direction in the meantime I'll give you a couple of, of guesses uh, if it's just the new growth and the old growth looks normal then it could be either a virus or it could be injury from certain types of herbicides. Uh, there are some herbicides that we use on weeds in the lawn. Uh, if you use a sprayer on the lawn and the same sprayer on tomatoes, uh, that contamination can occur. If you spray the lawn, and with some of them it's a warm day and that, that uh, chemical drifts, uh, you can have that kind of damage. If you spray the lawn and then mow the lawn and collect the clippings and put them around the tomato, you can get wow. that kind of damage. Uh, if you use hay from a pasture that's been treated for certain by certain products that control brush, you can get that kind of damage long term. Those are so persistent. Uh, the latter one I mentioned that you can even get them from the manure from the cow. They're that persistent. But, but okay. those those are all chemical uh, related, and those tend to be more all the way down the row because all the row got sprayed or all the row got mulched or you see what I'm saying, or all the row was beside where the lawn drifted over and got on it. Uh, so it's it's more a widespread. The other thing, the virus tends to be more hit and miss. 
Maybe the plant came in with a virus and then it developed as it grew. Uh, maybe an insect with the virus in the insect flew in and fed on your plant and gave the plant the virus like a mosquito would carry malaria from person to person. And um, those tend to be a little more, this one's fine, the one next to it is not, the one next to it is fine, and then there's two that are not, and then there's two that are fine. You know, it's more random because it, it, it requires the insect vector to get it in there. So both cases of virus and herbicide injury, there's no curing the plant. There's no spray. Right. And so we say we rogue them out. We pull them out and get rid of them. Uh, if it's a herbicide, then you need to figure out how it got there. And if it was the case of like hay mulch, get it out of there, um, and, you know, because it can affect other plants for some period of time. Uh, there, uh, there's no doubt. I think you've already nailed it. It's uh, because I, I sprayed herbicide near this raised bed and okay. uh man i had the same question i was like there it couldn't possibly migrate you know from this grass around the border and i i must be completely wrong and i and i think that's exactly what happened okay well it it wouldn't technically migrate but what it would do is either when you spray if you pump the sprayer up to higher pressures it tends to put out uh, more in the way of a fog than large droplets. Yeah. And so it, the high pressure creates that mist that travels on the slightest wind. And so that's a it's like you're spraying the plants when it lands yeah. on them. Uh, it, the other thing with some herbicides, not all, but uh, if you do it and the weather's hot, uh, that chemical can volatilize and drift as in a gas-type form over toward them. That's less common, but it can happen. Uh, well... And, yeah, I, I think I did this in a in the warm day specifically so that the moisture wouldn't be able to move around, and I loosened the nozzle so that it was not a mist but a stream. Okay. And, okay. But I think maybe even just the later a windy day following that, the the tomato could bend over and and touch some of this grass that that was contaminated. And, oh, okay. Or, or okay. some uh, some of the effects of uh, okay particulates of the like I, I also did some weed pulling and, and I think you know I wasn't absolutely careful not to have yeah. one thing touching other things well just so. kind of just kind of watch and see I don't know at this point in the season if you're getting twisting a new growth then that's not a good sign uh, I've got about 15 seconds so I just one quick thing is if it's the older leaves that are curling for people listening and the new growth looks fairly normal that is just a, a thing that certain tomato varieties do when it gets really hot and so uh, a couple of hot days can cause some of that to happen. Hey, I, David, thanks for the right. call. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We're here every Thursday from 12 to 1. And I hope you tell your friends and get them to listen, too. And let's talk gardening next Thursday. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley. 
Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arborgate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arborgate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851 or arborgate.com. Garden Success is also brought to you by the Farm Patch, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan, 979-822-7209.